0: Good morning, URC. I'd like to ask you to pick up your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. While you're doing that, I want to just give a little context for today's message. In Ephesians, Paul prays two massive, huge prayers. He prays for the Ephesians, and by extension, he's praying for us. And one of those prayers is in Ephesians 1, and he prays four things that I think most everybody in this room deeply desires. Number one, he prays that our hearts would be enlightened with divine revelation and knowledge of God as Father. He wants us to intimately know God as Father, and that ties in with Jason's great sermon last Sunday night when he talked about God being Father. Number two, he prayed that we would have an invincible hope for the future. And oh, how we long for the assurance that the best is yet to come. Number three, he prays that we would embrace the promise of a vast inheritance that we will receive together with all the saints. And what a sense of belonging and security and joy that would bring. And finally, he prays that we would experience the immeasurable riches and greatness of God's power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And that certainly would be enough to help each one of us with whatever troubles we're facing right now. So Paul wants us to know God as Father, have hope for the future, inherit riches, and experience power. Now, in Ephesians 2, where we're going to go in just a second, Paul's not just praying those things. He's actually going to help us experience those things. He's going to explain several things that we need to understand and we need to believe in order to know God, have hope, inherit riches, and experience power. So we're going to look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, with two under two big categories. First of all, an unpopular diagnosis. Paul is going to be telling us some very hard truths about ourselves. And your flesh and the devil and the world are gonna conspire to, to make you resist this. But God's grace is sufficient to overcome that resistance. Secondly, We're going to look at a glorious cure that enables us to know God, have hope, inherit riches, and experience power. So we're going to need to see two things. One is very unpopular. We don't want to see these things about ourselves as human beings. And the other is better, greater than we can possibly imagine. In one of my Bibles, above Ephesians 2, I wrote, this is my story, exclamation point. And if you're in Christ today, it is your story. And I pray by the end of the morning, you will be leaping for joy saying, yes, this is my story, praise God. If you're not a believer, really glad you're here today. And my prayer is by the end of the morning or the end of the day, you will own this as your story And come into the riches of what Paul is talking about. And that this might be the day for some people today to pass from darkness to light and from death to life. So with that as our goal and that little introduction, let's pray. Father, the truth about us by nature is, is way worse than we want to think. It's way worse than our culture would lead us to believe. And we're not going to believe it unless your spirit opens our eyes and opens our hearts. But Lord, beyond that, the gospel, the hope, the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we just have been singing about is so much better and greater and more glorious than we could ever imagine And again, Lord, we are not capable of seeing that or knowing that apart from your Spirit. So would you be pleased to pour out your Spirit upon me as I preach and all of us as we think about these things? And as we think about them, would you open our hearts? More than that, would you do what Augustine said? Would you strike our hearts so that we love you? And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's look at Ephesians 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. An unpopular diagnosis, a glorious cure. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. May God strike our hearts today with this truth and move us and change us for his glory. So the unpopular diagnosis that no one wants to hear. We live in an age where many people are unrealistically, we could even say foolishly optimistic about mankind's potential and future. And here we see Paul being counterintuitively pessimistic about our, our actual condition. And he's gonna give us five descriptions of fallen humanity that we won't wanna hear but desperately need to hear. Now as I preach this morning, Everything in this passage applies to all of us, but sometimes I'm going to directly address those of you who would not claim to be Christians. You would not say that you have repented of your sins and turned to Christ and have trusted in him exclusively. And other times I'm going to be speaking to most of us who are already believers like Paul is. But I trust that no matter which group you're in, and no matter who I'm addressing, you'll be able to listen in and you'll be able to, to understand and apply these things to your situation. And as I preach, as is always true, I'm acutely aware, this is my story and it's yours, or at least it could be. So five things Paul, Paul wants us to know about our fallen condition. Number one, he says people outside of Christ are dead. Dead to God. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Human beings outside of Christ, those who have not been awakened to reality, have not repented or trusted in Christ. Paul says, you're not just ignorant or misguided or trying to find your way or on a journey of self discovery. You're not even just weak. Or sick, he says you're spiritually dead. And make no mistake, that's really unpopular. I, in fact, it, it sounds offensive. You, you might say, wait a minute, how can you say I'm dead? I'm sitting right here, I can move my arms, I'm alive. And of course you are. Every one of us in this room is biologically alive. You may even be physically strong. You might be a great athlete. You might be unusually beautiful. You might be financially wealthy or socially very popular. You might even be religiously very active. But if you're not in Christ, if you've not turned away from a self-oriented life, you're dead. You're walking dead. You're a spiritual zombie. What does that even mean? John Stott is helpful here. He says to be dead to God means to be blind to the glory of Christ. You might believe that he existed. You might even admire some of his teachings. But you do not see him as beautiful, as attractive, as necessary. You do not see him shining in his glory. You're, you're blind to that. And you're deaf to the Holy Spirit. And although you may believe there's a God, you don't have any real a." Affection, any, any loving son or daughter affection for your heavenly father. And you don't really have any longing for fellowship with other Christians. Stott says, if that's true of you, that you're outside of Christ, you are as unresponsive to the living God as a corpse. <clears throat> now, there's a popular sort of understanding of what, happens in conversion that's just sort of out there it it goes something like this the unconverted person is like a sick person in a hospital bed and they're so sick that they can't move they're at the point of death and the person with the cure comes in the room and has the medicine that will revive them but the person is too weak to even sit up so so the person has to lean him up and open their mouth, can't even open their mouth, and put the medicine in <clears throat> and close their mouth and make it go down their throat. And in other words, they can't do any of that themselves, so the person has to do it for them, and the medicine goes down and they revive. And, and there's many people out there that say that's what happens in, a, in conversion. And that's a nice story, but it's not what Paul says here. Conversion does not happen in a hospital bed. Conversion happens in a morgue, or better yet, a graveyard. If you are outside of Christ today, you don't need medicine. It won't help you. You don't need therapy. You need resurrection, and that's something you can't do yourself. And if you are alive this morning, if this is making sense to you, if you have been enjoying praising God this morning, consider it's not because at some point in your life you wised up. It's not because you got your act together. It's because at a certain point in your history, God made you alive with Christ. He raised you from the dead. Brothers and sisters, Nobody wants to hear that. But your joy and your eternal life depend on hearing it and believing it. So that's number one. People outside of Christ are dead spiritually. Number two, Paul says, outside of Christ, you are deceived by the world. He puts it this way. You are following the course of, of this world just just following along with the um the values the attitudes the goals and even the role models of the world so here i want to talk to you if you're a believer now some of you were converted when you were very young and it's a wonderful testimony to be able to say i i don't ever remember not believing in jesus but some of you do remember and i wonder Do you remember when you followed the course of this world? I do. I grew up in the 60s, and I embraced what today we call peer pressure. The Bible calls it the fear of man, people-pleasing. And even as a kid, I was so desperately needing to be accepted by my friends that I often followed and sometimes probably even led into doing things that were immoral and even illegal. I embraced the value of comfort. I grew up in a wealthy family. We had abundant creature comforts, and I took those for granted, and I took advantage of those. And I even embraced, without realizing it, false religion. I grew up in a Christian tradition <clears throat> and as a young kid there was a time when I took the things that I thought I learned and I tried to use them to save myself. That's false religion. And then later when I grew up and I was doing things I, I really knew I shouldn't be doing, I conveniently Xed out things that I had been taught that I didn't want to deal with. That's false religion. I read about yoga. One night, me and uh, some band members and myself listened eagerly to an astrologer. I threw in a little Eastern chanting. False religion. See, when when you're following the course of this world, your essential philosophy or religion is called me-ism. And that's what I followed. What about you? What worldly values or beliefs or pursuits define your life? Are you following the course of this world? Or are you following the way, the truth, and the life? Number three, dead to God, deceived by the world, Paul says we are discipled by Satan. Now Paul's description has passed beyond merely insulting or offensive or irritating to downright outrageous. Some of you might be thinking, following the prince of the power, the air, are you saying unbelievers consciously follow the devil? No. I'm saying unbelievers unconsciously follow the devil, just like I did. Again, I didn't realize it, but I was being led around by the nose as a young person let's let jesus himself everybody likes jesus and he everybody sees him as so tolerant and so welcoming and accepting let's see what he says here in john 8 jesus is talking to a group of jewish people and john describes them as jews who had believed in jesus so these are these are people who Think they're following Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says to them. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, And your will is to do your father's desires. Whoa. Jesus is saying that those who who do not truly trust him and follow him, they don't just sin, they're slaves to sin. And they are children of the devil. This is wildly unpopular, but desperately necessary and ultimately hopeful for those who have ears to hear. Number four. Paul says outside of Christ, we are dominated by our desires. He says this, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And this builds off his previous description of following the course of this world. When we talk about being deceived by the world, we're talking about external influences that shape us. When we're talking about being dominated by desires, we're talking about the inner man. What's really ruling or controlling your heart? What gets you up in the morning? And when Paul says we're dominated by desires, he's talking about what theologians Both call original sin and actual sin. Original sin is our fallen human nature and self centered orientation to life. Actual sins are the actions and lifestyles that flow from our idolatrous heart. Again, a little testimony. Before I was drawn to Christ in my early 20s, being dominated by by desires looked like living for three things rock and roll music, my girlfriend and ultimately drinking way too much. It was a totally self-centered, self-indulgent, and self-glorifying lifestyle. Sometimes today we hear people talk about those as idols of the heart. They're not physical graven images, but they're, they're idols, things we live for, trust in, follow and they become God's substitutes. So anything you look to, trust in, and live for besides Christ and his gospel is an idol of the heart. So where does this all lead? Number five, Paul says we are destined for destruction. He says it this way, and you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Again, this is not only counterintuitive. I don't want to hear that. It's countercultural. Even people who profess to be believers in a, in a in a personal God, even some who profess to be Christians, do not believe in a God of wrath. I well remember <coughs> a conversation with a family member years ago, when this person said, "I do not believe God would send anyone to hell." In other words. There's no wrath. Where'd that come from? Well, one person that influenced that view was a Lutheran church history professor named Adolf von Harnack. He lived from 1873 to 1912. He defined Christianity as the universal fatherhood of God, universal fatherhood of God, and the universal brotherhood of man. You might say, well, that sounds good. Well, think about it. That would mean that every single person alive, Muslim, Hindu, agnostic, atheist, righteous, unrighteous, every single person is a child of God and a brother of everyone else. We might say it's a doctrine of salvation by mere creation with no atonement. It's a doctrine of salvation by Christmas with no Easter. In other words, there's no sin and God is never angry. He's never against anything. And that that sounds appealing to us. We would all like to believe in heaven with no hell. But it simply doesn't stand up to biblical scrutiny. Remember, Jesus called some who believed in him children of the devil. And Paul says, everyone, everywhere... By nature is a child of wrath. That means you don't have to do anything. You don't have to commit a heinous sin to be a child of wrath. You just need to be born. And again, that's incredibly unpopular. So, this is what Paul says about human nature. Dead to God, deceived by the world, discipled by Satan, dominated by unholy desires, and destined for Destruction. Now, some of you might be thinking, I come to church to be encouraged. This is not doing that. It's it's almost like John and the music group should all come up and just play one loud, ominous minor chord. And then there's this long pause while we contemplate gloom and doom. Where's the hope? Where's the cure? Is that it? No, it's not it. There is a glorious cure. There is a a tremendous hope, but it only makes sense against the dark background of what we just talked about. Now, we're going to look at verses 4 through 7. We just looked at verses 1 through 3. And in verses 4 through 7, I'm just going to highlight three phrases, short two-word phrases. But on those two-word phrases, you can hang all your hopes and desires and dreams. Those three phrases are, but God, in Christ, and by grace. That's the hope. So now the glorious cure that everyone in this room needs, and anyone who wants it can have it. Against the minor chord, long pause, gloom and doom of verses 1 through 3, all of a sudden we have these two words. But God, children of wrath. But God, this is what we would call a stunning reversal of fortunes. We like those. When your team that's losing comes back and wins the game, that's a stunning reversal. When the Allies landed at Normandy Beach in June of 1944 and the whole course of the war in Europe changed, that's a stunning reversal. Or I think of that, that picture of Harry Truman, on November 3rd, 1948, he's holding up a Chicago Tribune. And it says, Dewey defeats Truman. Truman's holding it up, but he's grinning because despite all the predictions against all odds, Truman came from behind and won the presidential victory. And so, it's a stunning reversal. But this, but God, stunning reversal leaves all the other ones in the dust. It's unexpected. It's unlooked for. And it's even undesired because people dead in their sins and children of wrath are not desiring God to do anything for them. But God. One commentator describes these two words as a lightning bolt from heaven. So let these words, but God, Lift up your mind, lift up your heart, even lift up your whole life today. But God, what? In verse 4, but God is rich in mercy and abounding in great love, even when we were dead in our transgressions. That's why we call God holy. He's different. He's not like us. There's nobody like him. There's no mercy or grace or kindness like God's. Do you see the lightning bolt of his mercy and love against the darkness of our depravity and death? Do you see the shocking connection between children of wrath and great love with which he loved us? Those two things aren't supposed to go together. Great wrath and great love Only God could lead us to believe that the collision of children of wrath with great love and mercy, the collision, we could actually survive and even live by that collision. But God, rich in mercy. Then in verses 5 and 6, but God made us alive, made us alive, together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Did you hear that? God made you alive. He raised you from the dead. He has seated you with Christ in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, dead people can't do those things. So the gospel is not life coaching. Here's some helpful tips on how to live better. It's not psychotherapy. It's not raising your self-esteem. It's not giving you a new and better religious path to follow. It's not even giving you enough grace so that you're able to choose salvation or not, like Arminians believe. The gospel is nothing less than resurrection from the dead. The gospel is Jesus speaking to Lazarus, dead in the grave four days, and saying, Lazarus, dead man, Come forth! And the command to dead Lazarus has in it the very power to bring about what he commands. This is what theologians call regeneration or being born again or sometimes effectual calling. It is God's hidden work to call dead sinners to life and give them a new heart of faith. By his power, through faith, God makes us alive when we were dead, raises us up to the land of the living when we were in the grave of sin, and actually seats us with Christ in the heavenly places even now when we were hopelessly chained to the earth. So that's the first two-word phrase. Is that good? But God. Second one, in Christ. Oh, how Paul loves this phrase. In the seven verses, verses 4 through 10, seven verses, Paul mentions in Christ six times. Listen to this. He made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him and seated us, raised us up with him And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's three times in one verse. In order to show the immeasurable riches of his grace in Christ Jesus. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Six times in seven verses. In Ephesians, 27 times he says in Christ. Or something like it. And in all his letters, 164. My voice is changing. 164 times he says in Christ, This is what theologians call union with Christ. And we could make a very strong case that it's the essential core doctrine of the Apostle Paul's theology. So why is being in Christ so important? Let me suggest three reasons. Number one, being in Christ exalts Christ himself as the treasury of all God's saving benefits. It reminds us that everything we need and desire is in Christ. We don't just need some forgiveness and justification over here and a little bit of sanctification over here. What we need is Christ in whom are all these blessings. This in Christ will keep salvation personal and relational and it exalts Christ to his proper place. Second, In Christ unites God's past grace with his present grace and his future grace. Did you notice that all three tenses are in this passage? Past grace. God made us alive together with Christ. Present grace. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Future grace. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us, In Christ Jesus, past, present, future grace, all in Christ. And finally, and and maybe most practically, being in Christ will guard us from the twin dangers, both of them deadly, of legalism and license. Legalism is the belief that what Christ accomplished is not enough for my acceptance with God, and so I need to make some contribution to that. That's deadly. License is the belief that what Christ accomplished for me on the cross, that's all that matters, and my personal growth in holiness is unnecessary and optional. That's deadly. And every one of us struggles with both of those. And the only antidote is to be in Christ. So, but God, in Christ, finally, by grace. For by grace you have been saved by faith. And this, what is this? It's the whole thing, grace, salvation, and faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. I really, really really love grace. Some of you old-timers might remember that years ago we used to sing a song called Grace, Grace, Most Beautiful Word. Now, I will eagerly listen to and hear and meditate on and benefit from any scriptural sermon. But when the theme is saving grace, I'm undone. I melt. I, I just... Breathe a giant sigh of relief and I overflow with thanks and praise by grace. So, what is grace? Well, sometimes we hear it referred to as undeserved favor. And it is. It's kindness showed to people who are dead and by children, nature of wrath, and who deserve hell. But it's also invincible power. Paul says. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And by his grace, I worked harder than all the other apostles. I think Kevin Kevin Van Hoos, or a theologian, he says it best. Grace is God's gift of himself, the greatest gift. So what does this grace include? Number one, God's grace includes Christ and all the treasures of his person and work. And no one, in my opinion, has said this better than John Calvin. So I want to quote Calvin from the Institutes. It's kind of a long quote, but it's so rich. Listen carefully. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of him. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, they will be found in his anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in his dominion if purity in his conception, if gentleness it appears in his birth, if we seek redemption it lies in his passion, if acquittal in his condemnation, if remission of the curse in his cross, if satisfaction in his sacrifice, if purification in his blood, if reconciliation in his descent into hell, If mortification of the flesh in his tomb, if newness of life in his resurrection, if immortality in the same, if inheritance of the heavenly kingdom in his entrance into heaven, if protection, if security, if abundant supply of all blessings in his kingdom, if untroubled expectation of judgment in the power given to him to judge. In short, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. Grace includes Christ and all the benefits of the gospel. Secondly, grace includes the gift of faith by which we are united to Christ, or we could say the very faith by which we receive Christ. See, if God offered all of us, all of this to us, and didn't give us the gift of faith, we would still refuse it, as perverted and corrupt and depraved as that is. So the very faith that unites us to Christ and all his benefits is the gift of God's grace. And finally, God's grace even includes all the good works that you will do. The reformers used to say, we're not saved by good works, we're saved by grace. But we are saved for good works. We are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. And those good works are necessary, not to save us, but as the evidence and fruit of of God's grace and our faith. But even those gifts are his gift of grace. All the good works you've ever done, all the kindnesses, all the acts of worship, everything you've done to love God and your neighbor, Everything you will do this week and until the rest of your life, until you see Jesus, every one of those good works are God's gift to you. So in summary, unpopular diagnosis. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature of wrath like the rest of mankind. Can you own that diagnosis? If you can, there's great hope. What's the cure? But God If you desire it today, it's yours. Let's pray. Lord, those 10 verses are really a brief summary of human history. And in the very center of of human history is the coming of Christ, your Son, into the world born of a virgin, living a sinless life, vicariously suffering and enduring the bitter and shameful death of the cross, and then gloriously being raised from the dead, ascending to heaven, pouring out his spirit and coming again. And Lord, I know that most people in this room have already believed and received, and we give you thanks, Lord. Today might just be a, a reminder of what you have done, and may it stir up our hearts to greater praise. But, Lord, my, my hope and my desire is there may be one person out here today who, if they're really honest, would say, I've, I've not turned from living my own life for me. I haven't submitted and believed in Jesus I pray that they would know that these five things, dead, deceived, discipled, dominated, and destined for destruction are true. And I pray that they would run by your grace to Christ today and that you would give them the faith to see and believe and receive and rejoice in and live out this life of grace, this life of unmeasured and unmeasurable grace. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.